Welcome to the Object Oriented UX podcast, a podcast about tackling complexity head on, gracefully organizing massive amounts of information, and designing scalable, future proof, and of course, naturally intuitive object oriented user experiences. An OUXer is a powerful blend of information architect, business analyst, facilitator, and UX strategist. If this sounds like you or what you aspire to, you are so in the right place. I'm Sophia Prater, UX designer, chief evangelist of Objectora UX, and your host. Let's jump into it. What's up, OUXers? Today I have a solo episode, just me and you talking about the first two steps in the ORCA process, object discovery and relationship discovery. But before we get going, I've got a few announcements for you. First, we are officially down to just a few spots left in cohort five of the OUX certification program. So this 10 weeks, this is a transformational program. It starts on August 30th and runs through the beginning of November. In this course, you're going to get, what are you going to get? You're going to get live office hours. You're going to get one-on-ones with me. You're going to get daily Q&A in the OAUX forum. Uh, unlimited access to our talented and knowledgeable OUX mentors, and of course, a learning portal where you can track your progress across all 19 freaking modules of video content. That is over 22 hours of nicely chunked OUX tutorials. So if you're listening to this episode around August 20th, August 21st of 2021, there's probably still a spot open for you. So you can go to OUX.com slash certification to get your spot. And if you're not ready for the certification or enrollment is closed when you're listening to this, you can always get that lifetime access to all of the content by purchasing the self-paced masterclass. And later, if you decide you want to get certified, you can put the cost of the self-paced course toward getting certified. So you can see a comparison if you want to look at the self-paced versus the certification. There's a side-by-side comparison, what you get in each of those um, in each of those options. You can go to OUX.com slash training. Okay, final announcement before we get into how OUX can help you sell research with those, uh, those first two steps of the ORCA process. Exciting news, we have a Facebook group. It is a private group, so you'll have to answer a few questions to join, really easy questions. Um, So if you're practicing or just nerding out on OUX and want to meet more people that are doing the same thing, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash OUX world and join the group. So the link is going to be in the description. All right, let's get into one of the most important parts of the ORCA process, the beginning, <laughs> the very beginning, very important. But let, let's back up actually first. So let's break down the ORCA process. So OUX used to equate directly to the art and science of object mapping, but then we added a call to action matrix. And then we realized that the CTAs should actually be touched on before getting into the details of attributes. So at least a little, it's just really helpful for people to start thinking about interactions around the objects before just like diving into the weeds on metadata and core content. And through the years, I also learned that bouncing between these activities of thinking about object definition and relationship definition 
and what users want to do to the objects, all the calls to action around the objects, and thinking about attributes, kind of iterating back and forth between these was really critical. So for example, like thinking about calls to action can lead to new attributes and new objects. So for example, you're in your CTA matrix and you realize, oh, um, I want to be able to message a person as a CTA. Well, crap, now we need message as an object, right? It's got structure, it's got instances, it's got purpose. We'll get more into that acronym later, SIP, structure, instances, and purpose. But a message, you know, it's going to have a timestamp on it. It's going to have the content associated with it. It's going to have who wrote the message. So that needs to be an object. Um, Another example, so let's say you have like or favorite as a call to action on an object, you then now probably are going to need some sort of metadata, uh, like number of likes or number of uh, favorites or number of bookmarks. Probably that's going to end up as metadata on your object. So kind of going in between these activities is really helpful because they all inform each other. So, um, and this is vice versa too. So the more we actually define objects with attributes, the more we can actually understand the objects. I mean, we're sort of getting that x-ray vision into the object. So now we can see more about how objects should connect to each other and what users might want to do to them. So in, uh, for a little bit of history, in the summer of 2019, the, this is when the ORCA process was born. So it was relatively recently. Um, and shout out to Mariana Ivanova uh, for her instrumental role in this uh, as we sat in a coffee shop, a beautiful coffee shop in Sofia, Bulgaria. Um, for about six hours uh, working through just a massive rethink of the OUX process after I ran a workshop and um, Sophia and um, Mariana was just amazing kind of analyzing the workshop and giving all of her feedback. And this is kind of the beginning of how we realized we needed to move some things around and create more, a more iterative process. Um, so yes, the ORCA process is within the overall UX, the iterative UX process, and then we iterate within it. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, so ORCA stands for Objects, Relationships, Calls to Action, and Attributes. Hence ORCA, all right? Um, the ORCA process is a whopping 15 steps. And in the masterclass, I teach them in succession. Um, we spend about an like two hours in lecture on each of the steps. Um, and and then like have you know multiple, there's multiple activities that happen within within each of these steps. But so if you think about the O's, the R's, we've got the O's, the R's, the C's, and the A's, objects, relationships. CTAs and attributes, and we go through rounds. So there's the first three rounds, discovery, requirements, and prioritization are going to have a step for the O, the R, and the C, the A. And then the last round is representation, and that's where we bring it all together into a testable prototype. And that round is just three steps, sketching, prototyping, and testing. So that's how we get to the 15 steps. Um, visualization helps with this. Um, where can you go to see this visualization? There should be a link, shouldn't there? I'm going to work on that. I'm going to work on getting a link so you can actually, if you go to, ooh, I know, if you go to rewiredux.com, let me look this up real quick. Yeah, rewiredux.com slash OUX. Yeah, I got that visualization there. So there you can actually see the ORCA process laid out in a grid, and it'll help if just like verbally talking through was a little much. Okay. So today we're going to go over how the first two steps, 
object discovery and relationship discovery. So we're in the first round, discovery, and we're just in the object and relationship. So there we get the first two steps, the or of ORCA. Um, We're going to talk about how these two steps can help you get buy-in for more user research. So I sometimes say that the ORCA process is a garbage in, garbage out process. And that's not completely true. I kind of want to elaborate on that. So yes, it needs to be fed by good research. I will often put the ORCA process between the um, the two double the, the two double diamonds, the double diamond, the two diamonds in the double diamond, as a way to sort of take all that research in into the process and sort of synthesize that research into structure that your visual design and your interaction design can hang on, kind of like as a foundation for your design um, and really bridging between those two diamonds. But if if your research sucks, um, what's going to happen is it's not necessarily that the ORCA process breaks down. What happens is it just generates a whole lot of questions. So if you don't have a ton of research or your research is old and like doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, um, then the ORCA process serves a really nice purpose of helping you better articulate the need for more research. It really helps bring to light the specific holes in your team's understanding and gets your stakeholders asking really important questions themselves. So when stakeholders take ownership of assumptions and gaps in the understanding, then like, bam, that suddenly UX research is not such a hard sell because it becomes their idea, right? You need to get stakeholders invested in those questions. So um, so let's say your users are doctors, just for an example. So instead of saying, we need to understand doctors better, that's not, it's too vague for, uh, for the decision makers and the business to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to allocate an extra week to, for you to go and go into hospitals or go set up a bunch of Zoom calls with doctors um, just by saying we need to understand them better or something more kind of vague like that. So instead, if your stakeholders are actually asking right along with you, if together you're asking questions like, uh, like how often do doctors share patients? Or does a patient in the system have one main doctor? Or can they have multiple main doctors? Do they have a primary doctor and a secondary doctor? And can that main doctor actually be a nurse practitioner? Or do we need to prevent that? Does it actually have to be a doctor? Does it have to be that kind of user role, right? So is there permissions associated there? And do doctors need to be associated with a hospital? So what if we do have a couple of doctors, I think, that are just using telehealth? Do we still need to associate them with like a main hospital, which we do with most of our doctors? And is a hospital in a rehab center, are those different things or are those the same thing? Is a, is a rehab center a type of hospital? And when a doctor, what about when a doctor checks in with a patient and takes a few notes, should those be attached to an appointment, even if the appointment wasn't planned? So how do we handle these ad hoc meetings between patients and doctors where notes are being taken? How do do doctors think about those meetings? What do they call those meetings? Are they different from appointments? Okay, so now we're really getting somewhere. Do you see how these questions are a bit more powerful than we need to understand our user better. So we just outlined a super specific user or subject matter experts interview script. 
right? We would probably need to adjust the way that we ask those questions to make them more user-friendly and to make sure they're not leading or anything like that. But if we we can identify those questions as things that we need answers to, and that can be the basis of an interview script. Script. <laughs> script. Okay. So the, the magic here is if these questions bubble up collaboratively, then... And, and if these questions, if many of these questions are directly from the mouths of your stakeholders and your decision makers, suddenly designing screens without knowing the answers to these questions seems incredibly risky, right? So if we create software, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down here. This is important. If we create software or any digital environment, app, whatever, If we create software without understanding the real world information environment of our users, we will likely create software that does not align to the real world information environment of our users. And this will hands down be more confusing and more complex and less intuitive software than if it did align, right? We wanna line up the real world information environment with our digital information environment. And to do that, we got to figure out what our objects are and how our objects relate to each other. That is the that is the place to start. Okay, so to get to these kind of meaty questions that I just outlined about doctors and patients and appointments, how do we get to how, like, rubber hit the road? How do we get to those type of meaty questions collaboratively and reliably, repeatably? All right. Okay, so we can start to do this by asking two big ticket questions. It's not going to be a surprise. What are the objects and how do the objects relate to each other? And in practice, getting to these answers is way easier said than done. And we spend about seven or eight hours on just these first two steps in my OUX masterclass. We spend a lot of time on these, like kind of a bulk of the time on these because it's so foundational to the rest of the process. But we're going to go over the most important stuff to get you going. And mainly, we're going to look at how these simple questions can sort of blossom into dozens of more specific questions that really show the need for more research and can help collaboratively sort of build out that um, that outline for a user interview script and have really the whole team bought into those questions. So the first thing we do is we start asking the question, what are the objects? And to answer that question... The first thing that I do in the process is something called noun foraging. So basically, we look for nouns that are particular to your business across a few sources. So here's just a few really great sources for noun foraging. The existing product, if there is an existing product, looking at labels and buttons and what kind of things are being mentioned. Um, Competitor products. Um, the marketing site for your product and the marketing site for competitor products, user interview transcripts if you have them, uh, notes from stakeholder interviews, vision docs from stakeholders, um, even like things like Wikipedia articles from your problem domain, that kind of thing. So kind of more, um, more d- uh, wider domain research, you can start pulling from that as well. So basically, you're putting your detective hat on and you're getting really resourceful and leveraging whatever you have. So if that's just the marketing website and maybe some search logs, maybe access to customer service chat logs, then that's what you're going to use for noun foraging. So you just gather as much material as you can and you start looking over it and you watch 
and you listen for the nouns that are used over and over and over again. And you just start listing them on a piece of paper. Or even better, get out your blue sticky notes. We love to put objects on blue and write them on blue sticky notes. You can start moving them around and grouping them. So you can even um, you can even add tallies. So when a noun shows up repeatedly, so we hear doctor, 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 patient, 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 appointment, appointment, appointment. You can start tallying like on your sticky note or next to your um, and next to your list to kind of get the relative weight of some of these objects and some of these really right now they're just words. Um, and you'll really want to focus on nouns that might represent objects in the system. So some of them as more abstract nouns um, might not end up as part of your inventory here. So if you have trouble de determining if a noun might be object worthy, I want you to go back to that, uh, that SIP acronym that we talked about earlier. So structure, instances, and purpose. Okay, so let's take an example. Um, let's take, a, let's do a different example. Let's take a library app. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in a library app, is a book an object? Okay, so structure first. Can you think of a few attributes for this potential object? All right, title, author, publish date, right, uh, publisher. Okay, yes, okay, it's got, it's got structure. Instances, so what are some examples of this potential object? Can we name a few? Gone with the wind, ready player one, um, Okay, check. We've got some examples. Purpose. Why is this object important to the users in the business? Well, book is really the main product of a library. It is what the library is providing to people and letting them check it out. And books are the reason that people, one of the main reasons that people come to a library. So we're pretty confident that a book has purpose in the, in the library app. So what I want you to make sure you are not doing is looking at screens and naming components like drop downs and check boxes and widgets. So components are just the packaging for objects. Okay, the components, those, those are what belong in your design system. And it's, it's interesting, a lot of design system methodologies do something similar where they kind of go component foraging. Um, Dan Mall actually talks about this and you, you don't you know, build your kit of um, of components and then create a product. You look at your existing products and pull your components from it. Um, this is different, though. This is they go hand in hand, um, and that's a, that's another podcast episode. But um, what we're doing is we're looking for the stuff that all those components are going to represent. Okay, so all those components are really a means to an end. So no one is coming to your digital place to play with your drop down. They're coming for the valuable things and what they can do to those valuable things. So those valuable things are what we're trying to identify. And usually those valuable things have a corollary in the real world, like doctors, patients, appointments, notes, um, diagnoses, things like that. They, they usually do have a corollary in the real world, and we have a digital representation of those things. Okay, so watch out for trying to uh, to log components. We're tr really trying to get to those those valuable things. Um, that's what we're trying to identify. Okay, so let's uh, let's do an example. Let's say we're working for a startup that is redesigning email. So this is this is where I would start. So first, I would look at probably my own email. Uh, happens to be Gmail. Um, then I would look at Outlook and maybe the new Hey email from Basecamp guys. I think it's from Basecamp and Yahoo. So I'd look at some competitors. I might even look at Slack and Basecamp, some of these so-called email replacers. Um, 
and I might read some articles on forums about people complaining about email. So I might Google what's wrong with email or what I hate about email and just check out some forums and start reading those. And often I'll print these things out too. Um, I'm really great at recycling, but I am I, I love printing. I love I love having the uh, the actual tangible uh, paper in my hand and I'll get out my blue highlighter and I'll start highlighting and circling objects that I'm seeing. So I'm printing out screenshots of interfaces, printing out the actual articles and just one of my favorite things to do, just sitting there with a stack of, um, of research basically. This is all secondary research. Um, if I have user interviews, I'll print those out too and just start circling, circling the nouns. So as I'm doing this, so for email, um, what might you come up with? So feel free actually to pause this podcast uh, and go do some noun foraging. Just don't get lost in your email. Come actually come back to me. But go, even if you're just your email um, or maybe find an article about someone complaining about email, what kind of nouns do you find that pass that SIP test that might be potential objects? Okay. All right. So maybe you, maybe you went and checked it out. Here's what I came up with. So an email, the actual email, the, the note, a thread, contacts, label, which might actually be metadata, not sure, rules and automations. Um, I don't know what the word for this is, but an email address that is not a contact, like somebody that's emailing you that's not a contact, I don't know what that word is, um, contact groups, attachments, um, Google Doc files, or kind of other integrated files that aren't really attachments. They're more cloud-based things that are linked to in the email. Uh, newsletter, which is an interesting one because Hey treats uh, newsletter differently. And then save responses and templates. Those were just a few that I came up with. That was enough for us to deal with right now. So Noun foraging can be done collaboratively, for sure. You have, like, let's say you have five people in the room, pick five sources, assign them out. Everybody takes 10 minutes, put on some good chill hot music. And then uh, after the 10 minute timer goes off, come together and, and talk about what objects you came up with. Find the overlap as well. Put those objects on blue sticky notes. Give everybody a stack of blue sticky notes. Uh, and affinity mapping is definitely your friend here. Start stacking those together and moving synonyms together. Um, so, or you can, of course, do the noun foraging before you bring the group together and prepare, prepare some uh, some starter questions to kick off the conversation. In interest of time, this is usually what I do. I usually go and do a round of noun foraging on my own, and I might show my sources for the noun foraging and kind of talk through the group. Okay, here's where I came up with all of these words. Um, and then we'll move from there and I'll have them start, um, I'll start asking questions about some of these objects and we'll start kind of moving them around. So now that you have your list of objects, you can start really drilling into the nature of each of those objects. So here's some questions you should be asking. So if your object, if you have objects that seem to overlap in purpose, ask one of my favorite questions. And that question is, are these the same thing or are these different things? So simple, but just amazing how we start designing screens without getting clear on this. Like email and a newsletter or saved response and a template. Are those the same thing or are those two different things? So if they're not the same thing, then we need to talk about how they're different. 
So, okay, so a newsletter is something that the user is subscribed to and contains a series of emails. And maybe I could go to a place and I can actually see all the newsletters I'm subscribed to and see all the emails that are part of each newsletter, actually. That, that could be cool. Um, and what about saved response and template? Are these the same thing? So sometimes actually creating definitions helps here, actually talking through what are these things and starting a glossary is a great thing to do. So you might determine a save response is actually text with potentially links and variables um, to fill in. So first names or um, other information you might know about the recipient. While a template is more about the look and feel like fonts and colors and maybe even some like a logo or placeholder images. So a real fun activity, um, if, you get to, if you get to a situation where you're like, oh, like we don't really know what these things are, is actually ask stakeholders to define the words, to define the nouns separately. <laughs> so separately and quietly. Okay, everybody write a definition for template and save response. Write two different def definitions for those, and then in five minutes we're going to talk about it. And so you, everybody sort of like shows their cards, and you see if you get different meanings, which you probably will. If you're designing complex software, you probably will get different meanings, and you'll get nuance there. And this is just gold for exposing misalignment, which is exactly what you want to be doing, especially early in the project. Expose that misalignment. You do not want to be finding out about it later in the project. Okay, so if you successfully determine that two things are different, ask about the relationship between those things. So a newsletter has many emails and an email can be part of one newsletter, but it doesn't have to be. So an email is part of zero to one newsletters. Um, or a template, can a template be applied to a save response? Can a save response have a default template? what happens if the template is updated, right? So let's say you have save responses with a bunch of default templates associated with them and then the template is updated and you change the border from yellow to green, does it change on all your save responses? And how do you communicate that to the user? So this becomes kind of question whack-a-mole. Okay. So next sort of set of questions is kind of like the, the flip side here. So what you also want to do is look for things, for nouns, that feel different but use the same label. So you might be when you're looking, you're like, oh, they're calling this thing a product? And on, let's say on the marketing site. So, you like, so you're looking at the marketing site and you see, okay, they're calling this thing a product. And they're also calling this thing a product. But those feel like different things. Or another, some other guilty words are service and feature. We get this a lot on marketing sites. Um, so watch out for those uh, catch-all words that are actually kind of vague. So one in email, like recipient, might be one that comes up a lot and sort of just means a lot of different things across, across your competition. Um, so explore these catch-all words and see if they actually need maybe three more specific labels to get very clear. And potentially, I've done this before with clients where we agree to eliminate those vague words altogether to just improve team collaboration, like saying, like, we're not going to use the term service because it means so many different things to so many different people. Here's our three more specific words of the you know, types of services that we're talking about here. And we're going to use those words instead. Also, simply look for words that you have no idea what that thing really is. All right, so this might come up through the work that we just talked about, or as you're just noun foraging, you're like, uh-oh, I don't know what that is. So something like an email client or SMTP, you might realize like 
those might not be objects within the system, but those are just words that you don't know what they are. Um, so some of them might be Googleable, um, and you should Google as much as possible. Um, you don't want to be asking your your business folks questions that you could answer yourself. Um, so always try to, to you know, do your own research and don't waste people's time, of course, you know that. Um, but other terms might be so specific to the product or domain that you need to have a conversation about it. And to be the person that asks that question is usually really valuable. If it's a if it's sort of a silly word that's being knocked around, there's probably other people that don't know what it is too. So some these are real world examples and in my work, these have nothing to do with email, but um, just some, <laughs> examples of things that turned out to be objects, and I just had no idea what they were. So record locator, incentive home, augmented line item, curriculum-based measurement probe. That was a fun one. Um, so here's the thing. After you figure out what those things are through Googling, or in the case of those I just mentioned, just talking to the business about them and getting them to explain what those things are, the next question to ask is, do users know what this is? What do users, do users call this something else when they're talking outside of your system? Like when they're just talking to each other, what do they call this thing? Is this internal jargon that has crept into the interface? So you want to try to kind of eliminate some of those things and use the user, uh, use the words that the user uses, use the words that the user uses internally as much as possible so you can match internal and external language. Okay, another great question to ask, a question that foreshadows the detailed work we do in object prioritization, which is step nine of the ORCA process. Ask, is this object in scope? Or better yet, this is really diabolical, after you clearly, you have this clearly defined uh, list of objects that everybody knows what those things are, and you're like, okay, these nine things, we all understand what these nine things are through just some of the questioning and some of the work that I just described. Ask team members to sort these objects from most to least important and ask them to do it separately again. So <laughs> try not to look too smug as you inevitably expose more misalignment. So you might see like, oh, okay, so for you, a big decision maker, a saved response is number three, and for everyone else is at the bottom of the list. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's get to a shared understanding of what's important and what's not so important, and what what objects are out of scope? We might say, you know what? Okay, we're not doing saved responses and templates for the first release. We're just not doing those. So you can put those aside. Um, until it's ready to come back to them. So how much better, <laughs> how much better it is to determine this and have a little chat about saved responses and whether it's in scope or not before you start designing screens, right? So this process helps have those initial scope conversations that often just come back to bite us so often. So I did this, actually, I did this for a startup a few years ago. Uh, we posted, we, we did the exercise, we had, we figured out what our objects were. It ended up being about 20 objects, um, which is a lot. Um, we narrowed them down to 15, I think. And then it's like collaboratively said, like, these are the ones that are probably out of scope. And then those 15, we got them to do a forced ranking. So most important to least important. And then we posted up the, the, the rankings. It was three groups of people, cross-functional groups with executives involved, and just showed the wildly different prioritizations. 
all coming from these like different leadership groups, basically cross-functional, but leadership groups. And the CEO stood back and looked at it and said, this is why we haven't been able to move forward for two years. And it's tragic to hear that. But as a professional, it actually feels pretty awesome to be the one that has facilitated really figuring out a big reason behind scope, tug of wars, and these constant strategy pivots have become just huge headaches for all of us. Okay, so once you have a good idea of in scope, clearly defined things, start doing some more of that relationship mapping. So we've already done a bit of this while we were just simply trying to determine if two things are different or not, and then saying, okay, these are different, so what is the relationship between them? But now start asking the team about every potential relationship. So you can actually make a matrix with your objects. So just writing your objects across the x-axis and then writing the exact same objects down the y-axis. And now you have a conversation about every intersection in that matrix, all right? So it's kind of like relationship battleship. So for our email redesign, we might end up in discussions about something like, can a saved response have attachments? Or what if a contact is also the author of a newsletter, but it comes from two different email addresses? Would a user want to actually connect those email addresses so I can see that this contact is the author of this newsletter? Or let's see, uh, like threads that have many emails and emails in that thread can have attachments can I see all the attachments in a thread? Can I kind of bubble up all those attachments in the thread? Um, Can an attachment, just like a document, have a thread associated with it? Can we like flip the script, flip the hierarchy there? Um, Instead of just an email always having attachments, can an attachment have an email associated with it? Mind blown. Um, So those are the type of questions that we can actually massage into more user-friendly questions for our user interviews to find out what people want and expect. And that can turn out into, just can like turn into not only a better understanding of the user's mental model, so that it becomes more intuitive, just makes more sense to the user, but also serious innovation. I mean, personally, I'd love to have attachments on saved responses. That would be great. So we we obviously don't have time. I don't want to make this too long. We don't have time to get into all the colorful visual artifacts that are a part of these two steps. There's multiple artifacts here. Um, but And this is also a podcast, so I can't very well provide visual aids. But I will link to two resources that will help. An object mapping quick start guide. That'll help you. And the mural discovery template that I use for, um, for Orca Discovery for actually the first four steps. So check out the show notes uh, for those links or just go to ouxcom slash resources and you can kind of scroll through and you can find them. Okay, so some final notes about framing. As you are facilitating these conversations, you don't need to frame them as like we're looking for gaps in our understanding that so we can so that we can go do more user research. That is actually what you're doing, but I wouldn't necessarily frame it like that. Instead, frame it as requirements gathering and helping you as a UXer better understand the scope and details of the system. As if, of course, your very knowledgeable stakeholders and PMs and business folks already have all the answers and you're just trying to get them so that you can design wonderful screens. And then as the questions come up and misalignment and gaps are inevitably exposed, take visual notes. So jot down all the revelations, just what, you, what you've what you determined, okay, we know that these things are true, and then have that parking lot of questions 
And most likely it'll be about equal, right? That every for everything that you find out, you know is true, there's gonna be a, another a new question associated with it. Maybe not. Maybe if you're lucky, there'll just be a few questions. And then you can feel good going into design without any more research if they know all the answers very confidently. Um, but most likely what you'll end up with is as these questions come up, you'll see some uh, infighting amongst your stakeholders, amongst different groups. Um, and that's where you can kind of sit back and um, and after a few moments, say something like, this would be a really great question to ask our users. So keep that running a parking lot of questions. And as... Um, as a bonus step, <laughs> if you're feeling very diabolical, have participants rate those questions that, that end up emerging. Have them rate those questions as high, medium, or low risk. So what you're asking is, if we go forward with design without an answer to this question, if we make up our own answer and, and if we're wrong, how bad might that be? <laughs> So we're basically cornering our decision makers into letting us do more research because they themselves are labeling questions as high risk. All right. So it's kind of like make it their idea um, and truly collaborate around these. And you are going to get some answers from them. Right. And just and sometimes it's in a way that they've never even articulated in this particular way. The answer is in their head, but it hasn't been written down in any requirements document or any kind of, um, it hasn't been sketched out anywhere. So you're just extracting the knowledge that they have. And then again, like doing that good gap analysis to generate questions to take back to users. So I promise you this. This is what I promise you. If there are fundamental business objects that play a part in your user's experience, and your team does not have a shared understanding of what those things are and how they all connect, disaster is on the horizon. So stop everything and don't design a single screen until you have cleaned up your understanding and your shared language. Creating a written and shared glossary and a little map of how all these things connect to each other might be the most valuable use of your time right now. Seriously, I'll say it one more time. Do not ever design screens ever again without answering these fundamental questions. What are the objects and how do they connect? Just try it out and see what kind of incredibly valuable conversation this type of work sparks. All right, so if you want some extra practice with this and a peek into more steps, grab a pen and paper and back up to episode two, if you haven't done this already, um, episode two of this podcast, uh, which is actually an audio workshop. And if you want a mini workshop on what happens if you don't answer these questions, you can go to ouxcom slash four mistakes. That's the number four. And I've got a two-hour mini workshop. It's $7 um, that walks you through some exercises. There are some fun printouts. Um, and it's just a really great way to get a better handle on why it's so important to answer these questions. And also the other two questions of the ORCA process, um, the what do users want to do to these objects, and what are the attributes of these objects? So what is the chemical makeup? OK, I sincerely hope that this helps you win time and budget to go talk to your users and gain clarity on what you're designing before you start designing screens. And if you want to learn more about the entire ORCA process, the OUX Masterclass is waiting for you. Go to OUX.com training to see all the options we have there. All right. Happy OUXing. Thank you so much for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. 
please visit objectoriedux.com slash podcast for show notes. Our soundtrack is Fighter by Ruby Bell, courtesy of Sugaroo Records. Happy OUXing!